This evening, I've asked uh, Sandy Galetti if she would come and share her story of coming to faith in Christ, how God has changed her life, what he's doing in her life now, and, and how he's using her in, in the kingdom and for kingdom work. And so uh, I invite you to, 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 as you hear Sandy's story, reflect on your own life and the goodness of God to you, uh, how he is working his grace in you, and, uh, and let's just celebrate in the good things God has done together. Sandy, you come. Jesus tonight. And who's excited that he loves you? Um, I want to just open up with 2 Corinthians chapter um, 5, a verse in there. For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion then one, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died all, for all so, let me put my glasses on, I'll be able to see better. So that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them and was raised. Pastor Stephen, thank you for this opportunity. I was born in Virginia, Sandra Elizabeth Padilla Velez. I was, I'm a military brat, and that's just an endearing way to say that I was born into a family of an active duty service member. Um, there are six of us, my mom, my dad, and uh, four of us girls. Um, we did not attend church. So we didn't have the influence of God's word, God's truth, or the hope of the gospel in our lives at all. All six six of us lived for self and did what was right in our own eyes. As a child and through my teen years, I was always looking for acceptance. Striving to, to be the best at, whether it was sports, at school, even trying to be the best for someone, just thinking that if I was the best, I could be the best kid, the favorite student. And I, I repeatedly came up empty because there is always someone else a little bit better. Trying to, trying to be the best was a bit of exhausting. And, and due to its unattainable nature, I often was disappointed in myself and even others. Mid-freshman high school year, my dad received an assignment to Germany, and I see it as a divine appointment. Sometime during my sophomore year, a neighbor family invited our family to a revival meeting at their local church. My mom attended every night. When she came home, she, she was different. There was an excitement about her, and there was just a happiness in her, Now I know what it is, but then I just thought she was different. Um, Then after this revival meeting, Mom began attending church regularly, and she eventually received Jesus as her Savior. So she came to to me and said, Sandy, this is is an ultimatum she gave me. She says, if you want to go out with friends on Friday night, you need to go to church with me on Sunday. And I thought... I got that. Just Sunday, and I can do what I want on the weekend. I'll go to church with you on Sunday. So I went. In keeping with my mom's demand, I went to church each Sunday. So to have my way the rest of the weekend. But each Sunday, as the pastor preached, the word of God was chipping away at my rebellious, selfish heart, replacing the darkness with light. One morning, while the congregation sang, I surrender all, I walked forward to receive Jesus as my Savior. And I haven't been the same since. 
Finally, I found true acceptance. And I'm so grateful for my Savior. I'd like to say right now that I walked with him faithfully since then, but not so. Um, let me, I want to read Colossians 3, 13, 14 first, though. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of, his, of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There is nothing in life greater than life in Jesus. We are meant for a relationship with God of the universe. So as I walked, I didn't always walk faithfully. Sometimes I drifted off the path of righteousness, seeking my own way. I acted more religious, acting like one of the Pharisees in Jesus' day, rather than as a true disciple of his. At times, I have been more of a stagnant pond instead of a fountain of life to those around me. I even took up an idol or two and walked with Jesus, just like the Israelites of old. And one of those idols I brought into my life at one point in my life was physical fitness. And in itself, it's not a bad thing. But when you let it take the place of your time with the Lord, when you let it to make excuses like, no, I can't serve in the church, I've got to do this, I realized I was letting it become an idol. And God in his graciousness disciplined me, and I'm grateful for the discipline because he disciplines those he loves. Hebrews says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And again, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son and daughter. I'm so thankful for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the unfathomable, unfathomable love of Christ and the hope I have in Christ. My salvation, my joy, my hope is all because of his great grace. One day, I'll meet Jesus face to face, and I'm going to fall down at his feet, and I probably won't say a word, and I'm just looking forward to that day. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy, so much for sharing. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are you know, 40 other stories uh, of, of ways that God has worked in your life intermixed in all of that. And um, uh, I, I, I look forward to hearing um, more and, and more and more as, as, uh, as days and years go by. Um, it's been a, um, a blessing to this pastor's heart to have um, not just Sandy, but many other people like her that, uh, that, that gives so much time, particularly in our children's ministry, uh, in our church. Um, I just, I see the fruit of it in the lives of our kids, uh, most especially right now, our oldest daughter, who's in, um, who's in one of our preteen grow groups on uh, Wednesday nights. Well, uh, our, our, our preteen girls group on Wednesday nights that Sandy leads along with, uh, along with Kay Courier as well. And, um, uh, I just say God is working through your life and your testimony, and, and your love, Sandy, for Jesus, uh, and I see the fruit of your discipleship in, uh, in the children in our church, and uh, I praise God for you, and I praise God for the work of grace that he's done in your life. Let's pray together as we, uh, as we get ready to dive into God's word this evening. I invite you to join me in your copy of God's word in Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians. 
First Thessalonians is a short book. It's toward the back of your Bibles in the New Testament. And uh, don't turn too quickly because you may miss it. First uh, Thessalonians comes right after Colossians and, uh, believe it or not, right before Second Thessalonians. Uh, who would have imagined to organize things that way? Um, it is toward the end of Paul's, uh, uh, or, or the, the canonical organization, if we can say it that way, of Paul's letters. As we'll see in a moment, First Thessalonians was actually one of the first letters of Paul to be written, um, and, and thereby one of the first letters of the, or first books of the New Testament to be composed, even though it, it uh, appears a little bit further on, a little bit deeper into the New Testament. Many years ago, I can't remember the year that it came out. I think it was in the late 70s, early 80s. But I, I watched this film as uh, either a middle schooler or high schooler. Does anybody remember the film Thief in the Night? Yeah, I see a few nodding heads. Uh, those of you who have seen it, did it just scare the snot out of you? Yeah, me too. Thief in the Night is a, is a film uh, along the lines of like the Left Behind series of books and also films. It was a movie about the rapture. It was a movie about uh, the, the day when Jesus returns to call the church to himself. And, uh, and, and the particular eschatological view in A Thief in the Night was one that we would call premillennial dispensationalism. Um, we'll get to that when we look at Revelation in a few months' time, I'm sure. Uh, but the idea there is that Jesus... When he returns, he secretly raptures the church, secretly takes the church out of the world, and everybody else who's not a believer is left here, and all the panic that ensues. It was a terrifying movie. My frustration, I think, as, uh, as I grew older and came to understand Scripture more and more, was that as I looked at the return of Jesus and, and grew in maturity of understanding Jesus' return and, and what all took place when that came, is that I found that Jesus' return is not a thing that's spoken of in terrifying terms in Scripture. In fact, it's, it's not even something that's spoken of in, 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 in scary ways, at least for those who believe. Rather, the return of Jesus is not something that strikes fear into the heart of the believer, but it's something that strikes confidence in the heart of the believer. It's something that, that brings joy and delight and, uh, and excitement in the heart of those who know Jesus and who love him. The return of Jesus, that, that Jesus, who was crucified for sins, raised from the dead, that he will physically and bodily return again one day to call the church to himself and to judge the living and the dead, is a, is a core doctrine, a core tenet of what it is to be a Christian. In fact, we would say you, you cannot properly be an, an orthodox believer, a small o orthodox believer, if you don't believe in the return of Jesus. And so it's a fundamental understanding of, of, uh, of, our, uh, uh, of our understanding of the gospel, a fundamental tenet of our understanding of the gospel, that Jesus will return again. And yet it was uh, a doctrine that the early church, at least the church in Thessalonica, struggled with and had a lot of questions about. And in fact, it's the, the issue, the primary issue, to which Paul is writing this letter to address in that church. We're going to see the importance of the return of Jesus for the life of believers all throughout 1 Thessalonians. In fact, the return of Jesus is referenced in every single chapter of the five chapters of 1 Thessalonians all throughout. Never in a, never in a terrifying way, always in an exciting, joy-filled, confidence-building way. So let's jump into this letter that Paul wrote and, uh, and see what we can learn and glean uh, about how the return of Jesus, the certain coming of Jesus, how it shapes our lives, how it impacts not only what we believe, but also how we live. 
Now, as we've said, this letter, if you're following along in your note sheet and you see the particulars there on that first page, it's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of this letter. We see that Paul is the author of it, Paul the Apostle. Uh, we also know him as Saul, the one who had that radical conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Very likely, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica in the years between 49 and 51 AD. He likely wrote it from the city of Corinth. That sounds familiar because we have two letters called 1st and 2nd Corinthians that are to the church in Corinth. But Paul wrote this first letter to the Thessalonians while he was in that city of Corinth during his second missionary journey. Now, Thessalonica itself as a city was the capital city of the region of Macedonia there in Rome. Macedonia was a a major region named after the father of Alexander the Great, who was that great emperor of Greece. His father was Philip of Macedon. Macedonia uh, also had the city of Philippi there in it. And uh, anyway, so it's a major region. Thessalonica had a population of about 100,000 at its peak and was a major commercial hub in the day in which Paul visited it as a Christian missionary. Thessalonica was quintessentially Greek in everything, Greek in culture, Greek in religion, Greek in lifestyle. Paul visited this city after he was released from jail in the Macedonian uh, city of Philippi. Uh, He got to Thessalonica by way of a couple other territories. We can read about that in Acts chapter 16 or 17. And when Paul eventually came to Thessalonica, along with Silas, his missionary partner, and Timothy as well, he followed his usual pattern of reasoning in the Jewish synagogues first. He would go to the Jews, proclaim to them the gospel, reason from the Old Testament to show that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And after he was successful or had fulfilled his ministry there in the synagogue, he would move to preach the gospel to the Gentiles as well. So that's what he does there in Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verse 2, tells us that Paul and Silas were in the synagogue in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, that is for three Saturdays. So it could have been three weeks or at least two weeks, but they were in the synagogue for at least three weekends, explaining and proving, this is what uh, Luke writes of, uh, of Paul in Acts chapter 17, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who am I proclaim to you is the Christ. This was Paul's sermon in synagogue. Now, not long after the three Sabbaths that Paul and Silas were there in the synagogues, uh, a mob was formed in Thessalonica by some of the Jews who had become jealous about the following that Paul and Silas were getting. And Paul and Silas were ultimately forced to leave Thessalonica under the cover of darkness in the middle of the night. So Paul's time there in that city was exceedingly short. Weeks, uh, maybe at the most months, We read, uh, continuing on in Acts, uh, moving to Acts chapter 18 and on, that Paul eventually landed in the Greek city of Athens. And when he was there in Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the church. They had been persecuted. They'd been forced out of the city. So he sent his ministry partner, Timothy, to go check on the Thessalonians, see if they're okay, see if there's even still a church there at all. When Timothy met Paul again later in Corinth, he delivered the very good news to the apostle that not only was there still a church in Thessalonica, but that the church was thriving. The church did, the Thessalonians, however, have some serious questions about the return of Jesus and what it meant for their fellow Christians, particularly who had died since Paul left. It had been some time since Paul was away. Some believers had passed away. Jesus hadn't yet returned. And those who are in Thessalonica, the disciples there, are 
trying to square how Paul's preaching of the return of Jesus, what that meant for their friends who had died prior to Jesus' return. And so Paul writes this letter to the Thessalonians to let them know of his love and care and compassion for them, of his prayers for them, but also to speak to the questions that they have. This is a letter of genuine thanksgiving and love for the church in Thessalonica. It is exceedingly, in exceedingly compassionate terms, Paul gives to the disciples at Thessalonica essential instruction about what will happen when Christ returns and how to live in this world in the meantime. There are a few major themes uh, that occur to us in this letter. First of all, and most prominently, Jesus is coming again. Uh, the, the fact that Christ will physically and bodily return to call the church to himself is referred to, as we said, several different times throughout First Thessalonians, at least once in every chapter. Another major theme is that Christians are to live with intentionality while they wait for Christ's return. We're to live on purpose. We're to live with a purpose. We're to work until Christ returns. And a third major theme that we see throughout this letter is the hope, is that the hope of Christ is the Christian's ultimate motivation. Our hope in Christ's return, our hope in Jesus, is what drives us to live with integrity and intentionality and, and in spirit-guided ways until he comes back. And as we think about this letter in the scope of redemption history, redemption history is the story of God's salvation beginning with creation in Genesis, moving to the fall, into the impact, the, the effects of the fall and sin in the life of every person, going into redemption, God's plan for a Savior, which is fulfilled in Jesus, and ending with consummation, which is when God brings everything into right relationship with himself. Well, First Thessalonians finds it itself squarely uh, focused on those two acts of redemption history, particularly redemption, salvation, the rescue from sin itself, and the coming day when Jesus will make all things right. First Thessalonians is an epistle. It's a letter. And letters, epistles throughout the New Testament are often written to specific churches, specific people with a specific occasion or a particular conflict in mind that the author is intending to address. Most of the New Testament letters begin with a theological foundation and then move to more practical application. And we get some of that in First Thessalonians. And so when reading, uh, you may have a typo there, it may say Galatians, not 1 Thessalonians. When reading 1 Thessalonians or any other uh, epistle, any other letter of the New Testament, you can use questions like these to guide your reading and your application. Questions like, what's the occasion? What's the issue that the author is addressing? We know here in 1 Thessalonians, primarily it's their confusion about what happens when Jesus returns. What theological principles are guiding the letter? In what ways is, is the occasion, is the situation of the people in Thessalonica, similar to our present day? And how do we apply God's word to our lives in maybe similar ways that they did to theirs? Now you have in your uh, note sheet an, an outline of how Thessalonians moves along, sort of verse by verse, section by section. But tonight we're going to look at the particularly the chief theme in First Thessalonians, that Jesus is coming again. We, we find Christ's return having multiple impacts in and for the life of believers in Christ. First of all, we find in chapter 1 that hope in Christ's return fuels true repentance. The hope that we have for Jesus coming back is what drives us to live lives of constantly turning from sin and turning in faith to God. As Paul begins this letter, he does so with extreme pride in Christ. Now, we would say most of the time, pride is a sin, but, but Paul is proud in Jesus for the salvation and the life and the testimony of the Thessalonians. 
Bear in mind, Paul and Silas, uh, were, were when they were in Thessalonica, they were not the only targets of persecution. If you go back to Acts chapter 17, we see also a believer whose name was Jason and many who were in his house that were persecuted by the mob that was stirred up there in that city. And the Thessalonian believers generally had undergone suffering at the hands of the mob and uh, others who were angry as well. But their hardship has not deterred their faithfulness. We read from Paul in chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. He says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Not only has the faithfulness of the Thessalonians spread throughout their city, but also the regions of Macedonia and Achaia throughout the region of Greece. These are young believers, believers that are young in the faith with a missionary zeal because of the powerful work of the gospel that has Uh, that has taken place in them. And this gospel, we learn, the good news that they received was not just a convenient ideology for them to adopt, but it was a call to repentance from idolatry. Paul continues in verses 9 and 10 of that first chapter. They themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned from how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thessalonica, like most of the Roman Empire, was besotted with worship to false gods, worship to idols. But when the gospel came in power to these Thessalonians, they turned from the futility of worshiping dead idols to worshiping the living, living God and his risen son, Jesus Their salvation brought them to wait with joy for the return of Jesus as Paul taught them he was coming. And this is what fuels their repentance. This is what fuels their their godly living day to day. Knowing that the living Son of God will return to gather His church to Himself is a strong motivating force for pursuing ongoing repentance. And this it does not by guilty coercion, but through joyous hope, knowing that Jesus is coming again, we are encouraged to walk in holiness. So in light of the fact that hope in Christ's return fuels true repentance, I ask ourselves, does Christ's return fuel our ongoing repentance? Does it fuel us to turn from sin? Dear friends, the return of Jesus is meant to do this. The hopeful expectation of his coming is meant to drive us to pursue holiness. The promise of Christ's return was so captivating and so compelling to the Thessalonians that it made repentance the obvious response for them. In light of the good news of Jesus, that he died on a cross for sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that he was returning, the Thessalonians said, what else would we do but turn from dead idols to serve the living God? In light of the reality that our God and our King will gather us to himself, Worship of dead statues and cavernous marble temples does not even compare. The living God inspires worship that fills up all of our lives. Dead gods require worship that intensifies shame, that offers no hope, that gives no deliverance. So, friend, do you struggle in repenting from sin? And turn your eyes to the glorious reality that Christ is alive and that He is returning. His return is meant to motivate, to fuel our repentance. 
And we see also, as Paul goes on in chapter 2, that Christ's return inspires genuine loving ministry. We see this particularly in the life of Paul himself and his ministry to the Thessalonians. The second chapter of this letter has Paul reminding the church there in Thessalonica of his ministry to them. He came to teach, fresh off of persecution in Philippi, but with confidence in Christ's call to their city. And the gospel, as it always does for Paul, spurs him to minister with genuine boldness in Christ to these people who were previously strangers to him. He says in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. It's interesting to note, as Paul continues on, the parental love for the disciples in the church at Thessalonica. He mentions in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that even though he comes in order to please God and not to please people, he, he, he thinks of the Thessalonian disciples like a nursing mother. Like a nursing mother, he was affectionately desirous to share not only the gospel with them, but his whole life. So much do I love you in Christ, he says, that I want you to know all of me. I want to share in, my, in, in life with you. I want to live beside you. I want to follow Jesus with you. I, want for you. I want for you to know me, and I want to know you in serious ways. And in verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter, we see that like a father with his children, Paul exhorted and educated and charged the disciples, the disciples with what sort of life that they were supposed to live because of who Christ was and the profound transformation that he brought about in their hearts. But most of all, we hear the heart of Paul for his beloved brothers and sisters as he prays for them. In chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, hear his prayer and read along with it. Uh, uh, read along in your copy of God's Word with me. We also thank God constantly for this, he said, that when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Notice in this prayer what Paul is grateful for in the lives of these disciples. He's grateful that they received the word of the gospel. That that they heard it and, and embraced it in their hearts. And that they accepted the gospel, secondly, as God's word, not just man's ideas. That they recognized the gospel for what it was. Not just clever teaching of the day, but good news from a living God. Paul is grateful that in receiving the word and accepting it as God's word, that they became imitators of Jesus. Imitators of Christ-like living. That their lives began to look like Christ's life. That their desires began to look like Christ's desires. And in so doing, that they suffered, even like Paul did, even like Christ did, even like the early Christians in Judea did, even at the hands of their own countrymen. I hope you hear in this chapter the very deep, genuine love of Paul for the disciples at Thessalonica. Surely it is the the very truth of the gospel that inspires this kind of love, this kind of sacrificial relationship with them. But it's also Paul's awareness of Jesus' return that drives his love for them. In the mind of the apostle, he loves the Thessalonians. He works for their benefit. He cares for them as his own children in the faith because of the all-enchanting prospect of presenting them to Christ when he returns. He closes this chapter, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, this way. He says, For what is our hope 
What is our joy? What is our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Friend, does your confidence in Christ's return inspire you to be a genuine, caring maker of disciples like Paul? This, of course, does not imply that at all that we save people and then introduce them to Jesus when he returns. But the idea of introducing others to Jesus, seeing him change their hearts, and then pouring our lives out into their lives to help them to be all the more ready for Christ's return is quite a motivator for discipleship. Paul sees the Thessalonians not as a, a badge of honor that he can show to Jesus. He doesn't see them as a, as a trophy to claim for himself, but he sees them as good fruit of the harvest to present to Jesus when he comes back. Uh, recently, my wife and I have been, uh, we took a little break from it, but we've been watching uh, The Crown on Netflix. It's kind of a, a docudrama about the life of Queen Elizabeth. And, and there I'm fascinated by all of the sort of rigmarole that people have to go through when they address the queen, when they're invited to have audience with the queen. If you're a man, you have to learn how to bow correctly. If you're a woman, you have to learn how to curtsy. You have to learn when to say your majesty or your royal highness and which one comes first and which one to use thereafter. I don't, I don't even know how that works. See all the trouble and, 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 and uh, drama that occurs when people get all of those you know, formalities and, and, and politenesses or whatever kind of messed up. But, but we see on the other side of that, there are people all along the way that are placed to train people from the, the, the populace, people from the laity to meet the queen. They teach them how to bow. They teach them how to curtsy. They, they, they teach them the words to say in the right order. They teach them how to interact with the queen. And then when that moment comes and the queen interacts with her subjects and in all the most respectful and appropriate ways, the one who was, the one who was, who was training, the one who was teaching them how to do that is, is full of joy, full of excitement. And the fact that their student has understood and now they're, they're able to be brought into a relationship with the queen in the right way. And that way, but, but all the more, is a sort of joy that comes when we help other people follow Jesus more closely. When we teach other people about who Jesus is, when we help them learn how to pray, how to study their Bibles, how to, how to grow as disciples of Jesus, and then to present them to Jesus at the end of time to say, these are the ones that I have, I have sought to bring closer to you. What a joy. Does your confidence in Christ's return inspire you to be a genuine, caring, loving, life-giving maker of disciples? I hope it does, like Paul. We see in chapter 3 that Christ's return further strengthens hearts for suffering. Paul had to leave Thessalonica early. He wasn't able to stay in the city as long as he would have liked to. He still wanted the disciples there to understand that if we are to walk with Christ, that we will suffer like him. The persecution that he experienced, the hardship that they experienced, was, was, was not a one-off. It wasn't a fluke. It was going to be part of life for them. That was the case for Paul in Philippi and in Thessalonica. And it would be the case for the Thessalonians thereafter. They were going to incur hardship for following Jesus. He says in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you in our labor would be in vain. Paul was genuinely concerned that after he left the city, the Thessalonians would fall away from the faith because of the suffering that they had endured. And he knew that they would, and the suffering that he knew they would have to endure. The good news is that Timothy's report to Paul after visiting the church 
and returning to Paul in Corinth, gave the very opposite news. Not only had the church survived persecution, but they were thriving in faith even through and, and because of persecution. Suffering for faith, we find in the lives of the Thessalonians, does not result in depression. It doesn't result in doubt or selfish survivalistic backbiting. Surviving, suffering for the faith results in love. Look at, ver- at chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless, establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord, of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. When Christ comes again, Paul prays, the church will be so mature in brotherly love and the holiness that comes as fruit of that love that they will have no reason to fear when Christ comes back. The Thessalonians endure suffering with love, growing in holiness because of the hope that they have of Christ's coming again. So we're met with this question. What does the, really in, the, in America, in the West, what is the very minimal suffering that we endure as Christians, what does it result in in your life? What's the hardship that we have or that we experience for being believers? What does it result in in our life? Does it result in love for one another? Love for the gospel? Love for, uh, for seeing the gospel grow as it did for the Thessalonians? I have to admit that I have no little consternation about the reality before us as Christians in America. It's true that the church is, in some ways, in America, coming under pressure to conform to worldly, humanistic, pleasure-seeking norms. And as we've watched this play out in the media and in the world around us, I'm deeply concerned that the overwhelming response by Christians to this momentary hardship, this light hardship that we experience, the overwhelming response by Christians has not been to love one another more deeply as we suffer, but to find reasons to fight all the more with each other over the smallest of issues. We see in so many places the church in America fracturing over tertiary, uh, 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 peripheral matters of theology when we should be brought together more closely in love and in commitment around the core of the gospel. And instead, we're responding to hardship with backbiting and conflict, all played out for the public to see through social media. For as much as evangelicals in America talk about the return of Jesus, it seems that we've forgotten often that his return is meant to strengthen us today in holiness and in love as we endure hardship for him. If that's not what characterizes us in times of difficulty as Christians, perhaps we've misunderstood the purpose of Christ's return altogether. It's meant to motivate us to love even in the midst of suffering. His return is meant to motivate us toward holiness even in the midst of persecution and hardship and oppression. Let's look to Christ's return and the the end goal of our salvation as motivation for living today with brotherly love that the world may see that we are Christ's disciples by the way that we love one another. We learn from this compassionate letter to the church, fourth of all, that Christ's return has life and death implications. When Jesus, the the fact that Jesus is returning has, has, has effect in how we live and how we die. In chapter 4, Paul begins to close his letter. He says, finally then, brothers, like a good preacher, he talks on for, you know, two, two whole more chapters. 
And as he, as he begins to close his letter, he gives final implications for how the disciples in Thessalonica are to live until Jesus comes back. Here we learn that the will of God for disciples of Jesus is to be sanctified. That means to be made holy, to have our hearts, our desires, our will conform to Christ. That the way we think, the way we love, the things that are important to us are all reflective of the things that Jesus thinks, the things that Jesus loves, the things that are important to him. It means to be made holy. It means to, uh, to be sanctified. It means for our lives, our desires, our thoughts to have all of the sinful predilections squeezed out of them. And to be replaced with holiness. Sanctification applies to every arena of our living as Paul deals with in very sort of blanket fashion. Chapter 4, verses 3 through 7, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you ever want to know what God's will is for you, Christian, it's for you to be holy. It's your sanctification. And sanctification looks like at least this, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but he's called us in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He continues this train of thought, the importance of sanctification in chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, where he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good abstain from every form of evil. Now we could take a preach a whole sermon on each one of these uh, one sentence, one phrase exhortations in these lists, but for our purposes here, it's helpful just to pay attention to chapter four, verse seven. God has not called us for impurity, but he's called us in holiness. Here's the point. The character of the savior determines the character of the saved. When Christ returns, it will be to call to himself all of those who have faithfully borne his character in this life. All of those who have, who have pursued sanctification, who have by faith in him been, ha, had their desires transformed by him. There are implications for how we live because of Christ's return, but there are implications for the death of believers too in the light of, return, in the light of, in light of the return of Jesus. Most specifically, the implication is that we who are still living should not grieve hopelessly about the death of fellow Christians. It does seem that in the short amount of time that Paul had to instruct the Thessalonians about the return of Jesus, that he was not able to fully flesh out the, uh, how the return of Jesus would, would take place and what the implications were for the resurrection of the dead as well. He had three Sabbaths to reason there, maybe a few more weeks to speak among the Gentiles in that city. And some of the Thessalonians in the time in between were apparently in distress about the, about, the, uh, about the idea that since their brothers and sisters had died before Jesus had returned, that somehow those who had died in faith, those who had died as Christians, would miss out on the resurrection. So to this concern, Paul writes to them in chapter 4, verse 13 and following. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the very good news of Christ's return. And without getting bogged down in all the details of what happens when he comes back, the very good news of Christ's return is that because he will return, death is not the end of life for those who are his. Death is not the end of the story for those who belong to Jesus by faith. Instead, his return results in resurrected life for all of those who died in faith. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, has a certain return of Jesus changed the way you look at life and death? Have you applied the implications of the gospel, the implications of Christ's return to the way that you live and to the way that you think about dying and the way that you grieve about those who have died? The return of Jesus promises that the life that we live now is for the purpose of preparing us to live resurrected lives. In fact, the certainty of the resurrection at Jesus' return means that we can begin living resurrected lives today. That seems to be in part Paul's encouragement. Because you will be raised, he says, you'll be raised to live sinlessly in eternity. Uh, Begin living that way now by the power of the Holy Spirit. More than just life, though, Jesus' return prepares us for death and for the death of others who die in faith. Death for the Christian is not the end of the story. It's not the end of life. It's a transition. It's even even a rest. Paul speaks about those who have uh, died in Christ as those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection from the dead ensured that death for all who die in faith is only temporary. By his resurrection, he ensured the resurrection of all who are made new by faith in him. So, friend, in light of Christ's return, live gospel lives today, knowing that you'll be resurrected from the dead if your faith is in Jesus. Begin living resurrected, holy, sanctified lives now. And not because you do so in order to try to uh, achieve or attain resurrection or, or earn your resurrection, but do so because of the certainty that resurrection is true for you if your faith is in Jesus. Finally, we learn from the short letter to this little church in Thessalonica that Christ's return helps us to live with confident expectation. Helps us to live with confident expectation. The first part of chapter 5 has often been cited to express the suddenness and unexpected nature of the return of Jesus. I referred to the movie A Thief in the Night where one day a woman wakes up and she finds that her boyfriend is gone and half the people that she knew have disappeared. There's, there are piles of clothes where people used to be. It's this really traumatic event and whether or not that, that faithfully portrays what's going to happen... Uh, at, at Jesus' return is not really so much the point, but the, the point uh, he, uh, here in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5 is that the coming of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly to many. But the return of Jesus is not to be in any way a terrifying event for those who are awaiting his return. Indeed, when Christ returns, it will be without more detailed advanced warning than we already have in Scripture. Those who are not expecting Christ's return For them, it will be a terrifying and surprising experience, but not for Christians. Paul says in chapter 5, verses 4 through 11, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. 
We're not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Most of the year in Albuquerque is fairly dry. Uh, Those of you who may not know, we do live in the desert. But every year around late summer, uh, late July through early September, we have a monsoon season where it rains often, if we're blessed by the Lord for it to be so. Rains often in in the late afternoon for for almost two months. We, We expect these regular rainstorms to come in. Now, the monsoon doesn't come like clockwork. We don't know the exact second of the day each year that it's going to begin and when it's going to stop. But we who live here in Albuquerque are not surprised when the monsoon comes every year because we've been expecting it. So it will be when Christ returns. As believers, we'll we'll not know the exact moment, but when he comes, uh, neither will we be surprised by it. So in the meantime, we're able to live with confidence in our expectation of his arrival. And we ought to encourage one another with this confidence, with this expectation. To say, I know it's hot and dry today, but the monsoon is coming. I know it's hard to persevere in Jesus today, but I promise you, he's on his way. And so we can pray for and pray with one another with confident expectation and and, and a hopeful looking forward to Christ's return as Paul does. Hear his prayer. Here is blessing at the end of chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We can live with confident expectation because of the return of Christ, because he who called us is faithful. He will surely do what he has promised. I want to ask you tonight, how do you invigorate your confident expectation of Christ's return? How do you stir that confidence up in you? How do you look forward to the day of Christ's return with with confidence, with joy, with excitement, and not with terror or with fear or uncertainty? It may strike you as strange, but one tangible way that Christ himself has given us to remind ourselves of his return and to remind ourselves of the confidence that we have is through the Lord's Supper. This memorial meal is on the one hand a recommitment to the gospel that Jesus died for sinners and rose again. When we take the Lord's Supper together, we are again affirming that Jesus died for us and rose again and our faith is in him. But it's also a reminder of the rest of the gospel. Not Not just that Jesus died and was raised again and there's salvation and forgiveness for those who have faith in him, but the Lord's Supper is actually a reminder that Christ will return as well. Every time we take the Lord's Supper together, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we read verse 26, where Paul says that as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Part of taking the Lord's Supper is, confident, is, is expressing confident expectation of his return. When we take this meal together, we declare that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, that Christ will come again. This is the fuel for our repentance. This is the inspiration of our love. It is the strength for our suffering. It is our hope in life and death. It is our great confidence. Jesus is coming again, dear Christian. He who has called us is faithful. He will surely 
do it. So when we take this meal together tonight, this meal that that memorializes the body of Christ broken for us in the bread that we eat, the blood of Christ that was spilled for our salvation in the cup that we drink, we are also proclaiming his resurrection and his return. The hope of the gospel made full, made final, made complete when Jesus comes once again. We'll remind you that this is a meal that is for believers. It's for those who have, who have said, who have professed publicly, Jesus is my Lord. He is my Savior. I'm looking forward to his return. So if you're not a believer or if you're parents of children who are with you tonight who have not made a public profession of faith, uh, we ask you to refrain from taking this meal. And I promise you, not a one of us will look at you sideways or with any sort of, any sort of judgment or, um, uh, uh, or, or malice in our thoughts. Instead, what we hope that you see in us are lives transformed by the joy that we have in Jesus. Lives transformed by the confident expectation of hope that we have that Jesus will return. And every one of us who take this meal, friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian yet tonight, every one of us uh, who take this meal would be more than happy to share with you how you can have the confidence that we have in Jesus who died for sins, who was raised from the dead, and who is returning again. Now, you don't have to be a member of First West to take this meal tonight, but we do ask that you be a Christian who's made a public profession of faith in Christ been baptized uh, as a believer uh, in Jesus and to be living daily in consistent walk with Christ, following him, being sanctified, seeking to have the will of God, which is our holiness, worked out in you. Dear church, Jesus is coming again. The Lord is faithful. He will surely do it. God bless you this evening. Go in confidence in Christ to a world that needs to hear the gospel. God bless you. Love you, church.